0: This is Trini Pillay and you're listening to Radio Free Leader.
1: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidburkuscom slash podcast. podcast, click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkus.com slash podcast or text "radio free" all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do?
0: So I uh, do a, a lot of different things. I am a psychiatrist, a brain researcher, and a, a certified master executive coach. And what I've done is pioneered a field in which I help leaders and managers figure out how to use their brains so that they can improve the outcomes that they want at work and also develop their leadership abilities.
1: Hmm. No, and I, I, I love that. And we're here, we're here on the occasion of a new book, but there's a whole past history um, of uh, that I can see in looking through your work and doing that through um, the neurobusiness group, but also through your work teaching, etc. One thing I think is um, really fascinating to me to chat about is really in the past, um, I've come at creativity from a strong psychological background, right? So when I wrote The myths of Creativity, it was basically here's what the psychology and the psychological study of creativity tells us is right or wrong, etc. And that was four, almost five years ago now. And so I really... Really enjoyed reading uh, the new book Tinker Dabble Doodle Try, which we'll get into sort of what that all means in a second. Um, I really enjoyed reading that because it comes from more the neuroscience angle of we've you know now we can actually peel back the curtain and see what's going on in your brain. It makes me wonder though, with all of the different things that you do, you're you're sort of a uh, a template for juggling these different things in order to sort of maximize the creativity into it, etc. But it, it makes me wonder how you got interested. In all of this, in looking deep at the brain, but then in using that to, um, to coach executives, etc. Is this a, a super intentional career plan, or are you, are you preaching the Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try mantra in how you've even developed your own career?
0: Uh, yeah, I think the latter is true. Because uh, you know, in addition to those things, I, I also work in biotechnology pretty seriously. And I'm also a musician and writing a musical right now and write books. So I do do a lot of different things. And I think that my life has been a combination of planning so focusing together with a lot of sort of unexpected, um, you know, unplanned events that I've developed when I've seen the opportunity to develop them. Uh, so I think it's less sort of super planned and super intentional and much more a series of plans followed by a series of unfocused with, uh, with the intention to make connections. And I think over time I've recognized that psychology and brain biology are both metaphors for understanding life and understanding the human condition. And similarly, even fields as disparate as music and physics can actually have a lot in common. In fact, music and math, I think I discovered it in early stage, have a very a, sort of, some kind of overlapping uh, sort of intellectual infrastructure. And so what I saw through my practice and with my coaching clients was that they too had lots of different kinds of diversity. Even people who just stuck to one field had different ways of approaching things, but they often stepped away From their own diversity and I found that a lot of people who did other things not only got a lot of pleasure out of life but also were able to make connections between those things and the primary things that they were doing and in fact one of the things I mentioned in the book is the fact that there was a study that was done amongst um, scientists and what they found was that the scientists who got the most citations were the ones who also had hobbies or the ones who also did other things but there was one caveat which is that you are more likely to be successful if you made a connection between this other thing and your primary work. So, for me, for example, I'm not great at tennis, but I love playing tennis. And when I play tennis, I register things like when to be offensive or defensive or run to the net or change my mindset. And then I take those same things and apply them to my work as well. And that's what I would recommend to people to actually be in touch with this whole notion of having a hobby and recognize that this has far-reaching consequences. In fact, there was a study done recently that showed that you are more likely to live longer if you engage in a hobby for an hour a day of every day.
1: See, I think that's so... I mean, the the hobbies thing is is fascinating to me because of that connections piece, but also because it's so different than a lot of our advice about how to excel in the world, right? I mean, we we, at least in the West, we plug... Yeah, children into a system that starts broadly in a variety of different subjects includes time for recess and a nap and all that sort of thing and then gradually we get more and more focused you drill down into a couple different subjects and then then you go to college where you pick a major and then if you do you either pick a career and you get better and better in that career or you go on to graduate school where you know more and more about increasingly little or And littler. And it's funny to me because what you're describing, like, you know, have a hobby and see the connection between the two, is so simple. But the book, Tinker Dabbles Little Try, reads like a manifesto against that sort of uber focus system that we all currently find ourselves in.
0: Yeah. Because, you know, so firstly, I'll, I'll just say off the bat that I think focus is absolutely essential and that everybody needs to focus in order to get stuff done. But what a lot of people don't recognize is that we are wired not just with focused circuits, but also unfocused circuits in the brain. So focus keeps us on task, but there are some disadvantages of focus that a lot of people don't register consciously. So for example, there was one study in which they, they asked people to watch a video, and they asked one group to watch the video really intensely, and they asked the other group to just watch it as normal. And what they found was that when they asked both groups of people to solve a moral dilemma afterwards, the group that focused couldn't care less. And when they fed them glucose, they started to care again, indicating that focus can deplete your brain of energy and make you careless and make you less engaged. The second thing is that focus, you know, when you're focused, it's great, but when you have blinkers on, and and let's say you're in whatever profession you're in, you often can't see the competition in the wings because you've got blinkers on. Or if you've got your head buried in the sand and you're super focused in that way, you don't actually see what's coming from the future. So you're not able to see that either. So I think that all of these different things, sort of not being able to see connections, not being able to see the future, not being able to see what's in the wings and depleting your energy, all of those things tell us that although focus is incredibly important, we really need to figure out when to focus and when to unfocus. And so I think you know, in, in relation to how people learn from uh, so alternate things, I think uh, two of the examples that I use in the book are examples that I've always found appealing. Um, Einstein and Picasso lived around the same times. And Einstein had his own think tank where he discussed the mathematical theories of Henri Poincaré. And by listening to the theories of Poincaré, Einstein extended those by two more steps and developed the theory of relativity. And at the same time, Picasso also had a group of avant-garde literati. And what Picasso did was he listened to the theories of Poincaré as well because he wanted to be inspired by the math to think about his own art. And because of this, he painted one of his most famous paintings, La Demoiselle d'Avignon, and also invented cubist art and the fourth dimension. So he was inspired by listening to mathematical theories to change his art. And so I think that it is this kind of connection making that can be really vital when we're trying to figure out how to add energy and meaning to our lives.
1: Okay, so there's... There's so much there to unpack, <laughs> unpack that I want to sort of break all my thoughts into two different sections if we can address them in, um separately because I want to make sure that the uh, that it's not lost on every, on everybody listening and also that they know sort of what it means for them. So the the first is that the the studies on focus and you you know you brought up a great one. I remember another study or at least this is anecdote from the book about um, a police officer who was chasing one suspect and missed a different crime and nobody would believe that you could miss that. And then in countless studies that they they, they simulate that environment, people miss it an awful lot. In fact, it reminds me of um, the, the famous invisible gorilla study, right? Where they're passing the basketballs back and forth and the people focused in on counting are missing that. And we always sort of knew that as a, a psychological thing. But really what you're describing is is now we know what's going on in the brain. So you have these two sort of focused mentalities. And we used to think of the brain, you know, left brain, right brain, that kind of stuff. It's not really about that. It's about how the network's Operate together, In your book you sort of unpack. We actually use two different networks in our brain for these two different tasks.
0: Yes, absolutely. There, there is a focused network, and there is an unfocused network as well. And this inattentional blindness that you're pointing to, with the idea that a police officer could actually run past an actual, um, you know, incident that was occurring, a beating, and not see that, has actually been proven in experiments that a lot of times we don't actually see what's happening around us. So I think for the people who are listening. One of the things I would love for people to think about is if they did build unfocus at strategic points in their days in order to activate this unfocused network, when would they do that and how would they do that? And what I find is, you know, we spend 46.9% of our days daydreaming anyway. So why wouldn't we want to learn how to daydream more effectively or how to unfocus more effectively so we can actually start to notice things that we don't otherwise notice? And I think I, I usually will say to people, In order to activate this unfocused circuit, which is also called the default mode network, or what we used to think of as the do-mostly-nothing network, uh, which which is actually completely wrong because it does a a lot, Um, I would recommend that people start to think about natural slumps in their day, you know, like mid-morning, after lunch, mid-afternoon, you know, when they're fatigued at the end of the day. When you're tired anyway, what can you do to re-energize your brain? And that's what the book is about. The book basically has a number of suggestions about how you can build unfocus in your day to activate the unfocused network. And this is about more than just creativity and energy as well. I think for me, one of the biggest inspirations in writing this book is that I've recognized that leadership, uh, you know, I, one of my most favorite definitions of leadership is the definition given by Warren Bennis, who said that leadership is simply about becoming yourself. It is precisely that easy and also that difficult. And when, you know, when he said that, I think it was so profound. But at some level, people were asking, well, what is the self? And who am I? And when I go to work, who do I bring to work every day? Now, when you activate the focus circuits, the parts of your identity that actually come up are the parts of your identity that metaphorically you can pick up with a fork. They're quite well defined. You know, it's a little bit like your LinkedIn profile, your name, your age, your <coughs> excuse me, your date of birth, uh, your gender, uh, you know, what, whatever you consider to be defined is what the focused circuits would pick up. But when you, when you activate the unfocused circuits, then metaphorically, it invites a whole different kind of silverware to the table. It invites a spoon so that other parts of your identity, the delicious melange of flavors of your identity are brought to the table. Like, you know, the, the feeling on a field a, when you were playing baseball or, you know, uh, just the, the, the scent of your grandmother. And it invites chopsticks to make these connections, metaphorically. And then it also invites a marrow spoon that digs into all the nooks and crannies of your memory circuits and gets fragments of memories that you wouldn't otherwise bring to the table. So in order to be optimally engaged, if you don't activate the unfocused circuits, you're not going to get the complexity of yourself all invited to the table.
1: So I've, I've heard a couple different um ways that the default mode network is is activated you know some of the more popular advice it, it actually isn't really advice on how to do it it's more you know first thing in the morning or when you're dreaming or that anecdote about some painter, I forget which one that used to sleep with a coin. And when the coin dropped out of his hand, because he was about to fall asleep, and he went limp, etc, then he would, it would wake him up, and suddenly he would attach it. And those are, those are great. But what I really loved in, in your book is there are, there are more practical things we can do to, like you said, to train ourselves in that network. I think, going back to this idea of what our our school and our workplaces sort of train us in is that that the folk to use the focus muscle, the focus network, all the time. There's probably an element of retraining to start to use that unfocused network that needs to happen. What are some of the ways that people can start doing that?
0: Yeah, uh, uh, so I'll, I'll go to some of the ways and, and also emphasize why we need to care about this. So the, the brain occupies about two percent of the body volume, but it uses twenty percent of the body's energy at rest. An effort only taxed on another 5%, which means that during this unfocused time is when the brain is using a lot of energy. So just, just to go through a couple of different techniques. The first is called positive constructive daydreaming. Now, Jerome Singer has studied daydreaming since the 1950s. And what he found was that if you slip into a daydream, it's not helpful. If you are daydreaming so that you're just rethinking and going over and obsessing about something that happened that was negative, that's not helpful either. But if you are engaged in positive, constructive daydreaming, it can make you more creative and re-energize your brain as well. And there are three things that you would consider doing during this time. So the first thing is decide on a 15-minute period during the day when you will do this. The second thing is you need to be doing something low-key, not nothing. So knitting, gardening, going for a walk, anything that's low-key and doesn't require a lot of thinking is what you need to be doing. And then the third thing is you withdraw your attention from the outside, which is where it is from the time we open our eyes. And you take this attentional flashlight and you point it back inwards so it can start searching inwards. And the way you start this daydreaming process is you have some kind of playful or wishful imagery and then you allow for your brain's creativity to take over. And by that, I mean an image like lying on the beach or running through the woods with your dogs. You know, whatever for you is playful or wishful, and as soon as you start this process, your brain starts shuttling memories around and starts connecting ideas as well, and this enhances your creativity. <clears throat> but aside from positive constructive daydreaming, there are a number of other things too. Uh, there's napping, you know, and, and napping, not all napping is the same. Ten minutes of napping improves clarity. Ninety minutes of napping improves creativity. So if you're finding that you're in that post-lunch stupor, napping for ten minutes will likely re-energize your brain. But if you feel like you're about to have an innovation meeting and you're about to try to tackle a problem that requires creativity, then a 90-minute nap can actually help as well. And there are some institutions that are actually considering having things like napping pods and authorizing this. And what I would say to people who are skeptical about this is I would say, I'm sure not every technique works for for every person. So to the extent that you choose an unfocused technique, choose it and look at your productivity before you institute it for a month and then after you instituted for a month so that you can see if this actually works for you. But besides napping, I mentioned two others and maybe we can go into those if you'd like and then we could talk about more as well. Uh, Doodling, you know, just scribbling on a piece of paper can actually be helpful. Jackie Andrade and her colleagues did a study in which they asked somebody, they asked people to listen to uh, a report that a woman was giving about things she had done that day and it was an incredibly boring report Hard to pay attention to. And so she had to, they had to remember eight names and eight places. And what they found was that people who doodled remembered 29% more than those who did not. So scribbling during that conference call or scribbling during a meeting can actually help you retain information. And this is partly because your brain is actually connecting with your unconscious. So a lot of fast processing is occurring. And also because your brain is less like a stiff sponge and more like something that's absorbent. So it absorbs information. And then there's one more which I find a lot of fun. I I called it uh, in in the book, psychological Halloweenism. And this was based on the fact that these experimenters, Dunbar and colleagues, actually looked at um, two stereotypes. And of course, these are stereotypes. and They don't apply to every single person. But the creative stereotype was an eccentric poet. And the, the, the boring, rigid stereotype was a rigid librarian and they asked people to completely adopt the persona of the of, of either the eccentric poet or the rigid librarian and then had them solve a creative problem like i'm going to ask you in 2 minutes to give me 100 uses of of a of, of a brick or as many uses as you can think of a brick and they found that if you took on the persona of an eccentric poet you were much more likely to be creative statistically more creative than if you took on the persona of a rigid librarian and when the same people exchange roles, they found the same finding. So this is a great technique if you're running an innovation meeting. It's also a great technique to use at the dinner table because it's entertaining. And you can watch people adopt different personas, and you'll see how a lot of times it's not that you can't find the answer to a problem. It's that you're stuck in your old ways of thinking, and this will get you out of that.
1: So I think I think that one is fascinating. The one the one I found the most fascinating was was your number two, was the doodle idea. Now, I say this because part of my, my life, I'm teaching undergraduate and graduate school classes and you tend to assume when you're the one standing there at the, at the podium or behind the lectern, right? That the person that's doodling is the one who's sort of unfocused, but there were, like you said, there were several studies where it showed the retention was actually sort of better. And now it's, it's become sort of my thing to recommend people. Hey, you've got that important meeting where you can't lose anything, bring a notebook, but don't take notes don't just take notes actually sort of doodle and and you know mess around etc it's it's funny to me cuz one of the things in, in particular that we um, we do at least in my classes is I make table tents for all of the students so that I can learn their names faster but also so I know who's there from day to day as like an attendance thing and there are several students that will Color the entire back of it with doodles throughout the course of the semester, and so I see like their progress every day when they hand them back to me and it's funny it's funny to me now because now you think about that as you no know, those are the people that actually might be doing better on the tests and doing better on the projects because they were calling more
0: yeah absolutely and and part of that is is I think it's, it's an overt demonstration that just but just because you're staring at someone or something doesn't mean that your mind is taking in that information though so your your mind is, is more likely to be on some kind of curious hunt and integrate information and absorb it and store it more effectively if you can get it into these relaxed places in the course of the day as well.
1: Hmm. So that that was sort of the, like I was saying earlier, there was a lot to unpack. And the first was this tech, this idea around uh, unfocused and the techniques, etc. But you also talked a lot, both now and in the book, about really more than hobbies. People who have, like yourself, built these sort of multifaceted careers and those don't happen. This is the interesting thing of focus versus unfocused. Those don't happen by accident. So, I mean, you, you brought up a bunch of artists, but you also yourself are in sort of four different jobs and you see connections between all of them. What did, what advice do you have for people that are, that are listening and are thinking like, well, okay, well, I've only ever been doing this one job for 40 hours a week on this sort of one career path. How do I start to build those things out? Because it's... Taking up a hobby is sort of a great first start, but I feel like the next steps are in your organization or in other organizations starting to build relationships and doing a little bit of work, You know what, what you might even call dabbling, in a couple other things so that you can make those connections.
0: Yeah, to a certain extent, it, I think it depends on where you are in your career. <clears throat> so what I will say is, even though I do a lot of things, uh, you know, I spent 17 years in a brain imaging lab studying brains. I studied music formally played music at a concert level, so took it really seriously. I also, you know, the biotechnology came from my medical training. So there is a depth of information that you can absorb over the course of your life. And I I think the most important thing is to remember that even when you go deeply, you can actually start course correcting and changing your life. So, for example, uh, in, in in the music project that I'm working on right now, which is writing a musical, I'm actually wanting to integrate my interest in technology, as well as my interest in the brain. And as I'm as I'm composing the music, I'm actually thinking about scenes for the musical that will involve the brain and also different forms of technology. Now, if you're at a place where you're thinking, you know, I, I don't know how this person fits this in, like, do you sleep, do you not? You know, I, I work hard and I play hard and I do sleep. And I maybe need less sleep than a lot of people do in the sense that I sleep for five hours a night. Uh, but, but I, I know plenty of people who sleep for eight hours a night who also get engaged in multiple things as they become more open to them. So I would say the number one uh, mental faculty that you really need to develop is your own curiosity. And in order to develop your own curiosity, you really have to start to examine some of the things that you might have valued previously. So one study, for example, looked at people who consider themselves to be normal, and they found that. In fact, they were pretty agreeable and conscientious. But they lacked a vital trait for creativity, which we call openness to experience. And openness to experience has actually been found over time to be protective against dementia. It's also really helpful for creativity. So the very first thing, I really believe, is curiosity. And so I would ask you to take out a piece of paper and a pen and ask, what am I most curious about in my life right now? And what one thing can I do in order to stimulate that? Now, you don't have to start by delving into a whole big field, but what you can do is maybe look look through your LinkedIn list and ask yourself, is there someone here who I'm connected to, who I haven't really connected to, but I'm interested in it? And maybe I could send them an email today. And maybe I can just ask them if, they'd like to, if they're local, if they'd like to meet for coffee. And by doing that, you don't actually have to have an agenda. You can say, I was curious about your background, and I had a feeling that that perhaps we could talk because there were some connections. So that's an example of what that curiosity is. I think the second thing is inspiration. So in order to make this change, when you want to change anything at work, your brain usually puts up a fight. And we call this cognitive dissonance. And you can see this because there's there's hyperactivation of the conflict center in the brain. Now, in order to calm the brain down, there are a, a lot of things that you need to do. You know, and and one of the things that you can do is stimulate the left frontal cortex, which will then get the conflict to be less so you can make the change that you want to make. Now, one reliable technique that we know that will actually cause the brain's conflict to be less is called spreading of alternatives. And what this means is, let's say you have a 40 hour week job right now. That's situation A. Situation B, you want to either add 10 hours of something in your own free time or take some time out of that full-time job and do something else as well, what you need to do is convince your brain authentically that this is going to actually help you have a more fulfilling life, a more creative life, and a life in which you can make connections and start to diversify your life. And, you know, in fact, one of the things I think you should use in this list of sort of why situation B is better, meaning the future with another job built in, is better than situation A, relates to Linda Gray's book, and Linda is a business professor at at London Business School, and she just wrote a book called The Hundred Year Life. And in it, she talked about the fact that our lives are getting longer, and that work is not necessarily what it used to be. And and, and I think she points out rightly that over the course of our lives, we are probably gonna get a chance to change course many, many times. So the more we're able to think in this non-linear way, the more advantageous it's going to be. And in the same list of advantages, I would ask you to consider the fact that that I I strongly believe that linearity is going to become commoditized because robots are, in fact, taking over jobs. And they're taking over all kinds of jobs, you know, things like food delivery. And, I mean, if you actually look at the types of jobs that robots are taking over, it's quite surprising. They're, They're now taking over sports writers' jobs. So anything that you can do logically or linearly is not going to be as valued. You actually need to be in a position where you can work with robots and also do something that's superior to that. And I think by adding on another job, what you're actually doing is training your mind to become more diverse and to actually start making connections across different areas. And so when you have a thread of alternatives, meaning alternative B is so much better than alternative A, we call this, this, this technique of, of making a list of advantages of alternative B where you have more than one job. The, is is made so that the, it's more and more obvious to your brain that sticking in the forty hour jo- forty hour a week job is not as good as adding this other job. This when it's maximally spread is when we is when we have this maximal spread of alternatives, and that is what will get your brain to sign on to make the change that you want to make and to add on this other job. So start with curiosity, resolve the brain conflict. The third thing I would say is, if you don't know what it is you want to choose as another job, you probably need to either try something random or look for some kind of inspiration. And people who have studied inspiration actually know that when you are uh, that, that inspiration itself has an architecture that you can actually engage in, and you can do it fairly, you know, logically. Meaning it's a three-step process. The first step is find something it's, it's aesthetic. So beauty is very stimulating to a lot of people and all kinds of things of, you know, all, people find all kinds of things beautiful so find something that's beautiful for you a video a picture something online keep a folder of it so that when you're in the when you're feeling uninspired you will go to this folder you will go to the inspiration folder and say okay here's something I love this video it always makes me laugh it always makes me feel really moved and so you make and this can be anything but it just needs to be authentic for you the second thing is Once you have this feeling of inspiration by looking at something beautiful, allow your your creative brain to be stimulated by going for a walk. And there, what I'll say is studies have shown that walking outside is actually superior to walking on a treadmill. Uh, I mean, both are probably good for your health, but in terms of creativity, walking outside is superior. And the second thing I'll say is that studies have also shown that it's better to walk on a meandering path if you want your creative brain to actually get stimulated rather than to just walk in a rectangle around the block. So if you're going for a walk, go outside, be on a meandering path. That's a second step after you look at something beautiful because what that does is it actually starts to get your creative brain to respond to the inspiration by making connections. And then when you get back to your desk, you sit down and you say, just take note. Has my brain come up with anything? Is there something that, is there an action step that I can take and see at the end of that what that action step is. But I sincerely believe that curiosity, resolving brain conflict, looking for some kind of inspiration that leads to action, are some of the ways in which you can get started on thinking about what this other thing might be.
1: Hmm. I, I love that. Those are amazing, amazing suggestions. I want to I add one more teeny one, if I may, um, as we start to wrap things up, which is my recommendation is grab a copy of the book, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, Unlock the Power of Unfocused Mind. There is so much here to think about and sort of retrain yourself on on how to think and how to use unfocused to think more creatively and ironically, more clearly and more solidly. So um, I encourage people to check out the book. sereni you, you know, because I warned you off air what's coming next, but we end all of our interviews. We ask all of our questions uh, or all of our guests the same five questions, and I'm ready to hit you with them if you're ready. I'm ready. So our first question, what's the best advice you've ever received?
0: I think, uh, I mean, the the first thing I could, the first thing that comes to mind is something that my mother told me uh, about God. Because, you know, I I was raised theoretically Hindu, but I ate all kinds of things. And, you know, I didn't necessarily follow any particular, I, I, eventually I I was sort of in this pantheistic world. And so as a child, I said to my mother, I said, you know, how come I, I heard, I heard that, you know, we're Hindu, but how come I I eat steak and I eat whatever I want? And she looked at me and she said, whatever you decide your religion is, it is. But if your religion separates you from other people, then it's probably not related to God. And if your religion joins you with other people, then it's probably related to God. And I think that idea, you know, whether, you know, one evolves in one sense of what God is from something very particular to a global state of consciousness, I think what it taught me was that any view that I have Uh, I I want to always remember that there's a counter view to that and that I can learn from that counter view as well and can actually learn to be close to someone who holds a very different view. And I think learning through contrast and paradox is one of the key elements of why I wrote this book. And I would recommend that every person look within themselves to even find their own contradictions. You know, maybe you are happy but also lonely. Maybe you are, um, and, and, and I think especially with people you're living with, if you feel like you have an absolute difference of opinion, stop midway in your next fight and say, you know what, can we just play a game? How about I take your point of view and you take mine? And let's see what we learn from this. And I can tell you, I've actually run a few workshops uh, with a couple of uh, Fortune 500 companies where they've actually used these techniques in debates as well. They've had people debate their own views and in order to win, and then they've had them debate the opposite views. And this analysis of competing hypotheses where you genuinely take on another person's point of view, is one of the ways to stimulate your creative brain and also to have a stronger sense of self.
1: Hmm, I like that a lot. So our our, um, our second question, I already know you get five hours of sleep a night. I'm curious how the rest of the day goes. What's an ideal work day look like for you?
0: It really changes from time to time. So uh, I don't, sometimes I don't like to work at all. Uh, and sometimes I like to work intensely. Um, In terms of what an ideal work day looks like right now, I think it's one in which I feel present in all of the things that I'm doing. Um, Don't receive too many annoying emails that throw me off. And also, when I do receive those emails, I have enough of presence of mind not to be sort of derailed from, from what I'm doing. So on different days, I do different things. So on Tuesdays and Thursdays, for example, I see both coaching clients and patients most of the day. Uh, and that, what that does is that, you know, it keeps me honest and lets me understand the complexity, lets me understand the stuff I know, the stuff I don't know. So on those days, things, when when, people, when I'm engaged with people and they're engaged with me and we feel like things are moving on, those days feel really great. And then there are other days when I'm delivering corporate programs and when I'm sort of talking to groups of leaders, I think when I feel like I've done something meaningful for them, especially activated their ingenuity. I would say my favorite thing of all is not necessarily sharing concrete tips, but letting people understand that these are all frameworks and that they are more like a car. And this car is not going to move if it doesn't receive the fuel of your ingenuity. So I think when I feel connected to my ingenuity and I can impart that to someone else who then feels stimulated to connect in their unique way, uh, I think that feels pretty ideal to me. What what I do like, and I I think my Twitter profile sort of uh, gives a hint at, at the way in which I like to mix things up. But I, 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 I say something about being somewhere between martinis and meditation because I feel like that kind of uh, balance and exploration of the, the spiritual and the material worlds <coughs> is, 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 is what actually keeps me sane. Mm,
1: I like that. Um, what are you reading right now?
0: Right now I'm reading just mostly a ton of papers uh, because what I'm trying to do is, is uh, write the stuff that I couldn't write in the book Either because it wasn't directly related, or it was it was related but the editor didn't want it in. So it's really mostly scientific papers right now that I'm reading. And I, I considered the other day uh, starting to read fiction again because something started to feel like it was just a little bit too much sort of nonfiction based. And I love D. H. Lawrence um, and and also really like Proust. Um, so I was I was considering rereading women in love which is one of my favorite books uh, because it too is a, is a story of paradox and and unu- and unusualness and i wanted to get back into that fiction again but most of the time i'm reading scientific papers related to whatever i'm writing
1: what do you believe that most people would disagree with
0: um so what do i uh, what what is yeah. one of my beliefs that most people would Right. With? what do
1: you believe to be true that you feel like most people disagree with
0: I would say one of the biggest things that I think people find challenging that I believe is that I, um, I, I believe that, that, that frameworks, like the frameworks that I offer, are both incredibly helpful because they are frameworks, but they're also really hurtful if people think that they are the ways to go about doing things. And I believe one of the most dangerous questions we can ask ourselves in life is how, and to think that by, by consciously having a plan, we've done most of the hard work. Because unconscious mental activity is about 98% of what goes on in our brain. So 2% of what we do is conscious. And so conscious plans and strategies are like plans. And if they are not embedded in the unconscious, the roots will not take hold and the strategy will not work and it will not be strong. So we really need to learn to till the soil of the unconscious before we can actually have successful plans. And I think a lot of people find this hard because we all want to believe we're in control. So we want to believe that conscious plans and deliberate efforts work. Now, this works if you want to go find a store, if you want to figure out how to fix something. But this is called simple cognition. Most of the things that we want, more meaning, more happiness, less stress, um, you know, more money, like, most of the things that we want fall under the broad heading of complex cognition, which is really about tapping into your unconscious, which is why I wrote this book, because pretty much all of the techniques are techniques that will activate the unconscious. But people have a really hard time with that, I think, because they feel, you know, come on, like a plan is a plan. Surely a plan is much more important than you're saying it is, and I don't believe it is. You know, there was a great conversation between Krishnamurti, the philosopher, and Houston Smith, the, uh, the uh, uh, religion scholar. And uh, Houston Smith and Kr- Krishnamurti was known for being very lucid. And so he says to Krishnamurti, do you think it is possible to have complete lucidity? And he responded, yes, I should say so. And he said, well, how? And he said, by not, by not asking the question, how? I, like, I believe sincerely that lucidity comes from freedom from authority. And that doesn't mean we don't listen to other people's opinions. It doesn't mean we don't learn from others, but it does mean that that the final step should be an integration that involves your own originality and creativity. But do be aware of your brain's automatic responses to things like this, because your brain will act, studies have shown that that unconsciously we associate the word creativity under conditions of uncertainty with words like vomit and agony. Our brains don't really like the thought of being off in this free space. So, So challenge me, I'd love to be challenged about this, but I truly believe that that a plan is only as good as the unconscious that is feeding it.
1: I like that. I like that a lot. Um, so our final question—you already sort of answered, but uh, with your with the Bennis idea. But I want to ask you the our question direct and see what changes. The title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader?
0: I think a leader is is someone who is willing to be deeply self connected. Uh, And and so I would refer back to that particular quote. And I think by self-connected, what I mean is connected not just to to, uh, his or her strengths, but to weaknesses as well. Because you have two options in life. One is to operate from your strengths, and the other is to operate from your wholeness. And I think that being in touch with our strengths and our vulnerabilities allows us to feel more whole, and it adds more power to the punch. And so I feel that leaders who are able to be in touch with both their strengths and vulnerabilities and are able to connect with both overt things about themselves and nuances about themselves, will actually be able to lead more effectively. In fact, a recent study looked at whether it is possible to predict uh, who would be leaders. They took nine groups of three people and they asked uh, asked these people to solve a dilemma and then they had them choose one person as a leader. And then they tried to see who was chosen as a leader and if they could predict this. When a group of independent judges tried to see who would be chosen from a video, they chose seven of the nine people, which was pretty good. But the best predictor of who the leader would be was the person who initiated synchrony with other people. And they were able to do this, to to figure this out using a, a you know, complex statistical analysis called a Granger causal analysis, in which they said, if you initiated synchrony with someone, then, and if you did this you know with, within a few seconds, you are much more likely to be voted the leader. And so the question is well, how do you initiate synchrony? Synchrony comes deeply from presence, wholeness, and resonance, which fundamentally is self connection. Because when you are self connected is when others will be inspired to find their own way in the service of what you're saying. And just as, an, as a metaphor, think of an amazing singer reaching a high note on stage. You know, they're not looking to connect with each person outside of themselves, they, their eyes are closed. Their voices are rising to the, you know, to the top of their range and they are fully self connected. And at that point, you hear a huge gasp because the audience is connected to you. So, and in the brain, there's an overlap between self and other circuits. And so I would say to, to, to anyone who's listening, to the extent that we can improve our connection to ourselves, we are improving our leadership abilities.
1: That's great. And a fantastic note to end on. The the book again, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, Unlock the Power of the Unfocused Mind. Highly recommended. There's a lot of work that I think all of us need to do to really start to re-engage that power of unfocus. And this is a fantastic start. Not only a fantastic start, actually, it'll take you probably as close to mastery as I think uh, one can get without hiring Srini as a coach, which is also an option. So Srini Play, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader.
0: Thank you so much, David. It was really fantastic talking to you. Thanks a lot.